Hi, I'm David Edelman, a neuroscientist and paleoanthropologist, and welcome to the podcast On Consciousness with Bernard Bars. Roundtable episodes of the podcast On Consciousness with Bernard Bars were recorded and filmed at my parents' La Jolla home. These deep dives into the nature of consciousness comprise a special tribute to my father, Nobel laureate Gerald Edelman, whose prodigious scientific and intellectual output cut an indelible swath, not just through neuroscience and consciousness theory, but across much of modern biology. In a sense, these podcasts are a natural outcome of all the discussions Dad and I had about the nature of consciousness and other biological mysteries over many years. We're here today with Bernie, acclaimed author in psychobiology, including his newest book, On Consciousness, Science and Subjectivity, Updated Works in Global Workspace Theory. Bernie is the recipient of the 2019 Hermann von Hemholtz Life Contribution Award by the International Neural Network Society, which recognizes outstanding achievements in perception by individuals whose scientific life contribution to the field of neural networks was proven to be paradigm-changing and long-lasting. Also joining us is Dr. Jay Geed, a child, adolescent, and geriatric psychiatrist by training. Jay is the Chief of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at UC San Diego, Fukui University in Japan, and at Johns Hopkins in Reproductive Medicine. His overarching interest for many years has been the brain and how it changes throughout life. As scientists, as philosophers, as human observers, under what conditions can we infer that some living organism is conscious? Consciousness is truly the difference that makes a difference. Today's discussion is about the rich variety of conscious experience by virtue of the richness of our sensoria and the capacity for the brain to pick this all apart and put it back together, both developmentally and evolutionarily. So today we're going to try to unpack those functional aspects of the brain that are absolutely critical to consciousness. Getting back, Bernie, to kind of the functional anatomy, you had mentioned two structures writ large, yep. cortex and thalamus. So just briefly, in a nutshell, Thalamus's role in all of this versus cortex. We tend to make the mistake and, uh, of looking at the gross anatomy, which is the stuff you can see, right? Uh, and the gross anatomy sometimes is very misleading mm -hmm. uh, because what really matters is the connectivity of single neurons, yes. and you can't see single neurons, and right. you certainly cannot see the synapses, right? right? Right. Uh, so where the real action is, we can't see. And what happens instead is that we kind of get a mental image of the gross anatomy and mm -hmm. it's wrong. And so as I have begun to understand this problem, which actually I learned from Joe Bogan, uh, who was Sperry's uh, neurosurgeon early on, Roger Sperry, Joe said basically that, uh, that the thalamus is not the center of the corticothalamic system uh, because of the resonance mm -hmm. feature, which your dad called a re-entry. Mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't matter what you call it. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, uh, and, and Joe, your dad's good friend, Joe Galley, Joe Galley. Yeah. Uh, put me on the spot at one point at the, at the lunch table and said, uh, I can't understand why point A in the cortex is connected to point B, and point B is connected to point A. Uh, and I understood, of course, that that was a joke, right? Because if you're an engineer, 
that doesn't work, right? It's going to blow up the cortex mm -hmm. yeah. uh, because you're going to get this horrible resonance and yeah. really run out of control. Mm -hmm. Uh, and but I think that was kind of a guiding question for your dad and, and also right. for Joe and right. others that they talked with. Why doesn't the cortex blow up? And so this c concept of the cortex running uh, near criticality is a as a worthwhile hypothesis, very mm -hmm. important hypothesis. Uh, because his, his cortex is surfing the waves. Uh, but the near criticality kind of implies too that it's ready to be influenced. It's at a, like a, a tipping point at all times. That, right, um, and it doesn't yeah. matter where the input yeah. comes from. Right, if you hear, if you're a rabbit, and you hear a, a cracking twig mm -hmm. behind you, you first run, and yeah, then yes, you look. Yeah. Right, yeah, and back to yeah, right. and even the experience, you know, up here then. Is your interpretation of my heart's racing like that? Yes. Uh, James. So I think we can say, you know, at least in the case of the mammal, we have a sort of a macroscopic functional view, relatively speaking, macroscopic delivered via fMRI, delivered even by something like uh, um, MEG, magnu encephalography, mm. which temporally is, of course, quite good. Milliseconds instead milliseconds of, instead of seconds. Yeah but not good spatially because mm -hmm. it's more or less, in, in fact, you're always recording field potential recordings, EEG, mm -hmm. on top of MEG. You never do an MEG study without using EEG electrodes as well. So we're limited there, right, methodologically. We can't really get down to the nitty gritty. We can't look at individual neurons. We can see areas kind of lighting up and doing what they're doing and being more active at a certain point versus right. another, mm -hmm. sleep versus waking, waking versus sleeping. Um, but we can generally agree, I think, that in the case of the mammal, there are certain super critical areas uh, without which you, it would be hard to argue for conscious experience, although there are weird cases. There are the cases of the hydroencephalic kids who are literally yeah. born with little or no cortex. Right. And yet some people, some quite virtuous people like uh, Bjorn Merker, have pointed out, well, look, Behaviorally, they look like they have the earmarks of consciousness. Let's kind of come to the point where we can say there's anatomy that's important, that's absolutely, it's kind of the sine qua non for the mammalian conscious experience. Mm -hmm. Cortex and thalamus get rolled into this. Mm -hmm. Greater detail, well, that's a work in progress. And as you said, Bernie, we can't really burrow down into individual neurons or even groups of neurons and study them in any kind of systematic way First of all, it's very invasive, as we all know. Mm -hmm. it's, in order to do that right now, we don't have a technology that allows us to do dig in without really... We're getting closer. Though. We're getting closer. And, and so. by combining all the MEG and EEG and fMRI and, and Tommy MRI, that could be a step forward as well, integrating sure. all the information. So, so let's get back into this last segment, and I think uh, we'll, we'll sort of wrap this stuff up. It won't necessarily be a pretty package, but I think it'll be a sort of coherent pra so, that can package. Can I draw one word? Sure. It's pretty clear, I think, in terms of the evidence, that we're talking about a dynamic, the dynamic global workspace, yeah, uh, yes. a, a dynamic core, yes. which is essentially the same idea. And, and, right. and by the way, it's a beautiful yeah. idea, but it's also, uh, it, it confounds us because it's a moving target, yeah. literally. literally. Exactly right. But, yeah. but, literally. but I think it's a very important point because with, with Penfield's sort of the grandmother cell or the Jennifer Aniston cell, this notion of a single neuron, controlling the memory, it should, it's not how it works. Right. So that individual neuron doesn't contain, yeah. it, but when you stimulate it, you trigger the whole right. 
connections, Sweet. the whole uh, vast new uh, so webbing of that. And so people often misunderstand that, that we have you know, right. one cell in our brain for this person, another cell. Sure. It doesn't right. work that way. doesn't work that way. But let's circle back. So uh, let's take stock. So we've sort of set out some provisional contours of a definition of what, what we think of as consciousness, a definition of consciousness. We've talked about the varieties of conscious experience and, and the necessary you know, sensory apparatus that go along, the entailments. We've now talked about, via the global workspace, we've talked about some of the relevant, relevant anatomy. Let's end on something that we sort of started with. We did invoke memory briefly. We talked about the role of memory, mm -hmm. but there, there are functional attributes that aren't in and of themselves, the, the, they're not the conscious experience, but they are, they are also functional sine qua non of the conscious experience, and, and memory is, is preeminent among them. Some very uh, profound capacity for a certain kind of memory. So I often associate, for example, uh, a sophisticated episodic memory with conscious experience oh, yes. and mm -hmm. yeah you know maybe maybe you can sort of unpack that a little bit but this is a good a good point i think to sort of end the conversation getting into the functional mm -hmm. all of the functional underlayments without which there couldn't be a conscious experience sinequanon so, yeah. being like without which not for exactly the, the exactly necessary minimum that's right right uh, the episodic memory mm -hmm. involves conscious experiences being encoded Mm -hmm. uh, autobiographical memory, same thing. Semantic memory, same thing at a higher level of representation in association cortex, as we now know. Right. Uh, all varieties of, cor of, of memory, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, come in through conscious moments. Uh, and that includes conscious moments of recall, for example, yes. from long-term memory. Absolutely. And conscious moments coming in from the senses and from sensory motor learning how to play the fiddle, yes. uh, all those kinds of things. So uh, so I think, I really do think, uh, after all the skepticism uh, of a whole century of behaviorism, uh, I really think that consciousness is the, is the means uh, by which uh, any kind of memories are established. Right. So now I'm going to say things, something that I think it provides a really good sort of punctuation mark uh, for all of this, which is that uh, functionally, we can really we can really say robustly here and now, and I think we, we can we at least us three can all agree mm -hmm. that consciousness is is a fundamentally biological phenomenon. Well, why am I saying that? One reason I'm saying that is for for the very thing that we've just talked about. The fact that it is built upon substrates that perhaps almost certainly predated in some way, shape or form. There are earlier forms of memory that certainly mm -hmm. came well before anything that we might recognize as a conscious experience, but they're there, they were there, and it's an underlayment. And I think you can argue, and I think again, us three would agree on this, although some people in neuroscience wouldn't necessarily agree, that memory is fundamental to the conscious experience, that you can't, you can't really easily separate the two. You can talk about memory in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So there are varieties of memory that aren't conscious, right? The, the brain responds and we do things behaviorally, but we don't have to be sort of aware, but yet our brain has a memory of it and that's the basis for our performing the action. That's fine. But 
in the case of the conscious experience, you can't subtract memory from it. You need uh, memory is, is fundamental to it. That's the first thing. I'm going to kind of expand our view, view briefly, and we, we will touch on sleep at the very end, and we're getting close. But I'm going to be, again, I'm going to play the devil's advocate, Bernie. We've, we've talked very much about a mammalian-centric view of the brain and of conscious experience it's in particular. Mammalian Yes, that's very good. I like that. I like that term. Um, but cephalopods. <laughs> that's the oh, yeah. last word. Well, they don't have... They don't have cortices, as we understand. Oh. They are they are really? oh. the, their last common the, the last common descendant or like ancestor ancestor last common ancestor of cephalopods and us lived more than five hundred million years ago and was something akin to a, a sort of a comp, more complex worm like animal, but basically a worm that didn't even have vision, perhaps. And so we're talking about a sort of a convergent event here, right? We're talking about yeah. a sophisticated nervous system arising in an invertebrate, an animal without a backbone, and really getting highly ramified mm -hmm. to the point where the closest, the, the, the closest invertebrate in terms of brain mass mm -hmm. and brain size in terms of the number of, of nerve cells, the number of neurons, is a honeybee or a spider. Wow. And the and the number of neurons oh. in in a honeybee might be a million spiders yeah. closely following that eight hundred thousand to a little bit more than a million, the wow. number of of nerve cells the number of neurons in an octopus nervous system in a common octopus that is half a billion, but they're clever aren't they they're super clever and they don't seem to understand that the cla the clam is a relative they don't seem to get uh, yeah. clams are not smart but they can but solve problems they can like use the they have amazing vision them. but they don't have a cerebral huh. cortex huh. we haven't even identified something that's like a sensory relay like the thalamus mm -hmm. and so here's the conundrum right and we're not going to answer this now i can not answer it but i can open the question because sure within the last couple of years the comparative people mm -hmm. who study comparative brains, right, mm -hmm. uh, have essentially demanded that we relabel the bird structure of the bird brain called the pallium, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, which, yeah. which also exists sure. in, in reptiles yes. and those how else. Yes. And the argument, as I understand it, is that the pallium uh, is, is grossly different from cortex, mm -hmm. or and even under the light micro microscope, Architecturally is different is, yeah. Yeah. from cortex. But I believe that uh, Harvey Carton and people like that. Harvey Carton and Cliff Ragsdale. Right. Yes. Uh, they're arguing that the connectivity it makes it cortex. Is that it's, correct? It, yeah, it's part, yes, it, that is correct, but it's not the whole picture. The whole picture mm -hmm. is that these guys studied the developmental trajectory of these nervous systems. Mm -hmm. And what they realized is that, in fact, if you look at uh, the cells in a developing bird brain, you know, genetically, and in terms of even the pathways that they take hmm. when they're pathfinding, they look like, cord they, there, are, there are cells you can identify as cortical neurons, even though there's no cortex, and they're, mi they're migrating radially up into the top of the bird's brain. Do you know and if they have myelin? Because that occurred they, about 250, 300 million years there ago, is, so they might not actually. Um, I think there there is myelination in so, bird, and bird myelin brains. being this um, insulation right. in, in 
along neurons right. that speed up the communication. Right. As far as but, I know, they have oh, it. Interesting. And and so I think Bernie, you're making a really good good argument that that you know we don't have to. We're not strictly corticocentric around this table. We're, no. We have some allowances, right? Yeah. And I only brought up the octopus not because we can resolve that particular puzzle piece. We can't put it into the full puzzle right now because we don't. We haven't worked out the anatomy. But how how but clever are they? I mean, extremely. I, I, I don't know if I maybe mix up this way, but they can like open a jar. And oh, get a, I can. Um, maybe yeah. <laughs> so it's for it's for another time. But without a cortex, they can do. Oh yeah, pretty that's pretty, pretty okay. Yeah, huh. for them it's really good. They do observational learning. So the final learning. Okay, right. right. So the final note though is to go back. To where we started, and this is the this is the absolute last bit, but I think it's important to, to mention it, which is methodologically, and as Bernie has pointed out any number of times, and as you will almost certainly find in this book in any number of places, that sleep represents a really good contrast to the waking state in terms of what you might want to pull out as as the functional the functional aspects of the brain that are critical to the conscious experience. It gives us a lot of interesting clues. This idea of the brain fundamentally being a prediction machine. Right. Like, and in order to do that, we have to create an internal model of the world. She's into Carl Friston's uh, amazing stuff about the energy is sort of it's the fundamental essence of what a brain sure. does. But this notion then is that our dreams are kind of weird because um, our brains aren't getting the the B to A, you know, sort of the kind of the, the sensory input. Mm -hmm. um, and so that right. in a sense, when we're awake, we're kind of dreaming, but several times a second, we're getting input from our eyes, our ears, our bodies, sure. and that kind of corrects the, these models in yeah. a sense. Mm -hmm. And that that's sort of the missing element between awake and asleep. Right. It's, it's kind of more of this top down. Right. Um, when you're asleep, the yeah. cortex is sort of talking to itself. And, more than and this is uh, relatively mm -hmm. new for me, so I, I'm not, I'm not trying to you know, speak as an expert, but more as, as a curious student. Right. That seems really interesting concept that yeah. um, instead of interpreting you know, all these details of uh, weirdness of dreams that as my role as a psychiatrist you know, did a fair amount of back in the day, that this is sort of a um, little bit more understandable in the sense of that the brain's model is, is pretty imperfect. Right. But we constantly are correcting it throughout the day while we're awake. That's right. And it's this um, never-ending uh, cycle that is part of the experience of consciousness. Right. Our but, model, our testing model, well, constantly updating it. Exactly. Um, and sure. how that fits into the memory part is still a difficult one for me, thinking of how poor babies' memories are. Right. Like, could they actually be experiencing consciousness in the same way that I am now? And I, don't, I don't know the answer to that, but so, I go so round I, and round. I have yeah. a provocative question on that, because uh, consciousness is expensive, right? Uh, biologically, it's expensive. If you assume that, hmm. it, that requires cortex, yeah. for example, right. yeah. it, re it requires mm -hmm. more yeah. glucose mm -hmm. and oxygen mm -hmm. and, and carrying away toxins. Yeah. And then to, to David's earlier point, even when you're sleeping, you know, so like right. people think of the sleep as turning off. You, you said it wonderfully, you said, you know, different patterns. Different right. con different patterns of connection to exactly. sleep, but but I mean it's twenty to twenty five percent of all of the glucose we use, you know, sleep or awake. That's a that's a that's big percent. Big percent. You know, Three oh, percent of the size. Twenty percent of all the energy. Right. And know, if there were hominins, if there were some species of hominins different from humans, uh, who would be unconscious during yeah. dreams, they would yeah. eat us, right? 
They might. They might. But I think, you know, yeah, they might. They might. So let's, we'll, we'll leave that aside for now because I think, you know, um, uh, we're sort of, uh, we're coming to the end time-wise. But I think to sort of sum up, we haven't, I think we can all agree that we haven't really arrived at, you know, a, a perfectly palatable definition of consciousness yet. But I think we're, we're well on the road. I, I think you guys would agree with that. We're, we're, oh, we're yeah. getting there. In this particular segment, I think we've managed to sort of outline both the promise in terms of the ability to sort of observe these things, both in the context of particular behaviors, which paints the difference mm-hmm. that we might be looking for that is the conscious experience. Mm-hmm. And also in terms of the functional anatomy that's relevant, cortex yeah. and thalamus and the mammal being, being the example. And also the methodological problems. What what lies in our way ahead, right? What mm-hmm. what's what the road ahead leads us, uh, and and our limitations. And right now we're still at a relatively uh, early point, technically I think, vis-a-vis capturing conscious processing yeah. in the moment. And and it has to do with what Bernie said. It has to do with our level of resolution. I think we should leave it there. Uh, I think we've gotten a good start. Um, and for now, I, I would like to thank Jay Gee and Bernie Bars for a really stimulating conversation. My, my great pleasure. Uh, on the nature of consciousness. I'm neuroscientist David Edelman. Thank you for listening and for tuning into the podcast On Consciousness with Bernard Bars.